And will you turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Joshua? Joshua chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16 of this chapter, which is our sermon text. And then also, to amplify it, we'll turn to Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17, and read on into chapter 5, verse 10. We begin with Joshua chapter 2. I think you know the context that God has redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, led them across the wilderness where the stubborn, stiff-necked people resided for 40 years until that first generation had died off. And then Moses died, and Joshua was called upon to lead the people in. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord that... Uh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the man said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about that when the Lord gives us the land that we will Feel kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. 
she said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. And afterward, you may go on your way. <coughs> and now we turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 4. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. <clears throat> if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus... That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. <coughs> Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. <coughs> but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Amen. We'll end our reading here of God's word. And may God add his blessing to it. One of the benefits of living no longer by our own wits, but rather by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the benefits of that is the moral clarity that Christ brings into the thinking and practice of the Christian. God's spirit weans us away from this dark, twisted world and its values and trains us to operate within the sphere and boundaries of reality. This reasonable universe that God himself created, by grace through faith, he lifts us out of the godless, self-indulgent fantasy world in which our culture is steeped, a fantasy world, man-centered world, of fake news and broken promises. A world essentially built upon lies. By grace, God progressively enables his people to see through all of that. So we begin by grace not only to love God and others deeply, but just as important, we begin to think clearly and to speak truly. It is the complete cellar to attic renovation of the Christian's character that God intends for you. That's his goal, transformation by the renewing of your mind. By grace, the Holy Spirit shines the light of his holy law into the murky darkness of our old thinking and practice. And he calls that old thinking and practice exactly what it is, sin. He calls it sin. And then he directs us by the gospel to live in it no longer to cast it off and in its place to put on Christ the new man and the light of the world from this day forth to the whole world around you friends you the Christian represent him you represent him In just that way, by grace through faith, Jacob, the supplanter in days of old, the deceiver, received grace to become a new man. Israel, prince of God. In just that way, by grace through faith, Simon, the nobody, Simon, the completely average Galilean fisherman, became Peter the rock. When he sets his mind to it, what can't God do to make the crooked straight and the weak strong? If you're a Christian today, I'd like you to think for a moment of this marvelous journey that you're on. Even now, this marvelous journey you're on to the celestial city 
the way that takes you from your situation here in San Antonio, whatever the specifics of it may be, that takes you from here and now to heaven. That's not a broad, straight highway that you're on, is it? It's not easy. It's, not co it's, it's complicated. There are places along this route, from here to heaven, that aren't well marked. And you certainly can't see your destination at the far end of the road from where you are now. In his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan taught us to expect some significant twists and turns along the way. Along this road, you can expect to encounter some sloughs, bypaths, moral ambiguities in life. You can expect to find countless opportunities to compromise, and by compromising, to get yourself into trouble, to get yourself off track and lose your way. That being the case, ten very clear, very simple, straightforward commandments offer us just the guidance we need when we come across any of these decision points in life, any of these forks in the road. And simplicity really is the key because of those sticky situations we run across that we call ethical dilemmas. Ethical dilemmas happen when obedience to one of God's commandments seems to conflict with obedience to another. We have, for instance, in the ninth commandment, the very clear guidance that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which the Apostle Paul then generalizes this way in the letter that we read to the Ephesians, the passage that we read. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. In fact, in this connection, the apostle elaborates a bit. Our goal at the end of this lifelong spiritual journey that we're on, our goal is maturity. Personal growth into the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, he says, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. I begin our study today by holding up before you this picture of our eventual transformation into the full moral stature of Jesus Christ. I need to do this in part because of the competing values that complicate our attaining it. And in part because when we find ourselves actually in the jaws of those ethical dilemmas, we may confuse the hard but simple commandment with its apparently easy caveats and escape hatches. 
when we're in a tight spot, we're too ready to implement the easy wrong rather than the hard right. And I'm thinking, for instance, of those times when the clearly biblical interest of truthfulness collides with that of safeguarding life and limb, for instance. David certainly understood that conflict. He felt it keenly when fleeing from Saul on one occasion, he found himself in the house of the Philistine king, Achish, there in 1 Samuel chapter 20. On that occasion, David felt constrained by circumstances to feign madness, insanity, to act crazy in the king's presence rather than to appear to present any kind of fully rational threat to him. It was deceit. And the Apostle Peter also felt the conflict between truthfulness and safety there in the courtyard of the high priest, didn't he? When three times he denied even knowing Jesus. We don't always make good decisions, do we, when we are trapped in the jaws of that ethical dilemma. But we are considering today a more difficult case. The lie of Rahab, recorded for us in Joshua 2. Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, was a woman obviously well acquainted with moral compromise. For over 400 years, the whole Canaanite culture in which she'd grown up was steeped in the falsehood of false gods, idols, made in the image of false and reprobate men. And until fairly recently, that fantasy world of idolatry was the only world Rahab knew. But sometime in her parents' generation, the news began circulating there in Jericho about some significant social unrest going on in Egypt. News of a mass migration of millions of people starting out across the Sinai Peninsula. People migrating this way. All of Canaan's on edge because nothing seems to be stopping the inexorable progress of this nation of former slaves. I don't have to imagine any of this, and you don't either, because here it is in the testimony of someone who actually lived it. To the two spies who came to her, Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. That is this woman's testimony of faith. 
and the implications of that testimony, the implications for herself and her family, absolutely scared her to death. What's she going to do now when the Jericho Gestapo comes pounding on her door demanding that she turn these two Israelite spies over to them? It's very clear that these men had been seen. They'd been observed. It's clear they'd been identified as infiltrators, as spies, and that the whole matter's already been reported to the king of Jericho, including their present location in the house of Rahab. The Gestapo moves fast, but verse 4 tells us that by grace, Rahab moved faster. Already, she'd taken the two men and hidden them. She'd hidden them up there on the flat roof of her house. She'd hidden them in the stalks of flax that were laid in order on her roof. Which, if you think of it, is a pretty flimsy makeshift hiding place, isn't it? It's a hiding place that's put together completely on the spur of the moment. And you can be sure it would have been completely ineffective at hiding these men if she hadn't fortified and sealed their safety with a lie. By itself, the hiding place of the stalks of flax wouldn't do anything for the men except buy them maybe another minute or two. It's the lie she tells that puts the bloodhounds off the scent. There it is in verses 4 and 5. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said to the pursuers, to the Gestapo, pounding on the door, she said to them, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. It came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. Rahab's lie to the Jericho Gestapo prevents the, appre the apprehension and the almost certain death by execution of these two spies. So caught in the jaws of that particular dilemma, Rahab might have opted instead to tell the truth, right? She might have told them, Okay, guys, just go up to the roof. You'll find them hiding in the flax. She might have sold those two men downriver. And if she had, then the interests of truth would be served. But the men would very likely be dead. And the larger purpose of God to bring his people into their promised inheritance, it wouldn't be thwarted of course, God isn't thwarted, but that purpose might be delayed a bit. So what's a woman in this situation to do? It's the difficulty of deciding the better course that makes an ethical dilemma a dilemma. She tells a lie. <clears throat> and we might say, well, of course she did. She's afraid. 
She's afraid of her own people. She's afraid of these strangers, afraid of the mighty people and the almighty God that they represent. And besides, she's a Canaanite. Lies are the native language of Canaanites. Of course she lied. Well, this might well have been the end of the story of Rahab if we didn't see her story picked up in the New Testament. Rahab the harlot, the liar, turns up actually in at least three New Testament passages. One of them is within the Hall of Fame of faithful Old Testament believers. Hebrews chapter 11. We read there of hero after hero of faith down through the centuries, and then we come to verses 30 and 31 of Hebrews 11. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. There's no mention of her lie there in Hebrews 11, is there? The Lord's brother James in his letter also makes mention of Rahab's behavior as something commendable. Chapter 2, verse 25 of James. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. No mention of her lie there as anything commendable either. In fact, she's commended for other things, specifically for putting her faith into action. The point is this. We live in a world of competing values and moral ambiguities. We do. What then can we say to these things? Well, first of all, dear ones, be assured that ethical dilemmas, whenever we have to face them, are genuinely hard. Which is why scripture is so charitable, I think, toward Rahab. She was in a hard spot, a tight spot. When God converts us, he doesn't lay us in a comfortable feather bed. Your life doesn't become trouble-free when you become a Christian, when you exercise true faith. Decisions don't all become easy and clear-cut. When God converts us, he begins training us to think. To think carefully to think critically, to weigh the factors, and on the spur of the moment to make the very best decision that we can. He trains us to think on our feet. Second, let's be absolutely sure of the fact that God's law has no escape hatches that would allow us to sin without actually sinning. Rahab the harlot, not her circumstances, but Rahab the harlot is responsible for Rahab's lie. 
And yes, the New Testament commends Rahab, but not for her lie. She's commended specifically for welcoming the spies in peace, for receiving the messengers and sending them out another way. That much was praiseworthy. Lying was not. A third important point the Apostle Paul makes in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10. He says to them, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Whenever you find yourselves in the jaws of a dilemma, dear ones, remember this. Your situation may seem desperate. But it's not hopeless. It's never hopeless. God's already provided a way out, and your part is to do your best to find and follow it. Thanks be to God. Your situation is not hopeless. Fourth, and drawing on one more New Testament passage to help believers who are in a tight spot, let me direct your attention to the eighth chapter of Romans, verse 1. The Apostle Paul has just led us through his excruciating seventh chapter that ends in these words. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And that's really the fountainhead of all human dilemmas, isn't it? You, the Christian, always want to do the right thing, and you find it to be, or at least to feel, humanly impossible to do the right thing. This isn't as rare a situation as we'd like it to be. It's more like the ocean in which we swim every day. It's the steady state of life. We want to do one thing, but we find ourselves unable. Take heart then from the opening verse of chapter 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rahab lied. She'd rather not have been in that position of trading off the truth for the lives of these two men. But she was, and she made the best decision she felt she could under the circumstances. We're often in such circumstances, aren't we? We don't know what to do. So we do the best we can, given the light we have, and we move forward in confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in our own flawed decisions, but in Christ who's promised to honor those who honor him. Under the gun we make mistakes. And the glory of the gospel isn't 
that we get everything right. The glory of the gospel isn't that we make all the right decisions along the way. The glory of the gospel is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A few minutes ago, I mentioned three New Testament passages that mention Rahab. And then I only gave you two of them, the one from Hebrews 11 and the other from James chapter 2. The third that I had in mind actually appears on the very first page of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. It begins, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. After tracing the line of Judah for seven generations, Matthew then records that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. So Rahab the Canaanite harlot and liar became by grace mother-in-law to Ruth the Moabitess, and both of them ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this way, God has often been known by grace to piece together many a jagged edged little life. Many a flawed person of questionable heritage and background. He pieces such lives together. Tragic, irregular lives like yours and mine. He pieces them together in order to assemble this grand glorious mosaic of his abounding grace towards sinners. Amen.